This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor at Education Next. We are recording this podcast Wednesday afternoon, just following the big 2022 midterm elections. At this point, we know President Biden and the Democratic Party have done better than many pollsters had anticipated, though CBS News says that it thinks the Republicans will win the House of Representatives. Senate remains a toss-up at this point. But is there enough to know to draw some conclusions about the significance of the election for education policy? How important were the education issues and what role did they play? So to discuss these topics, even at this short moment after the election has been held and all the votes are still yet to be counted, I have with me on the Education Exchange, uh, Daryl Bradford, the president of 50CAN, a national organization that advocates at the local level for high quality education for all kids. So thank you, Daryl, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Professor Peterson. I'm delighted to be here. Well, Daryl, the White House claims that it's gleeful at the results of this election. it lost fewer House seats than has often been the case in off-year elections, especially when the president's popularity is down. Uh, So um, it's very likely that the red wave is little more than an undulation. (laughs) (laughs) Well played, well played. Uh, does Does this mean that the second two years of the Biden administration will look a lot like the first two? Yeah, so um, so good questions. I want to I want to answer your question by answering a, a, another question too. So I think you know one of the things that I know you know well um, is that uh, you know federal elections are bright and shiny objects, and they catch everybody's attention. But their ability to impact local education policy is you know limited um, compared to like a governor or or something like that. So on the one hand, I I do think that. Um, you know, yes, there was an expectation of uh, significant Republican gains. I think the fact that those did not happen were less about, um, you know, anything President Biden and his team did and more about uh, what Mitch McConnell um, referred to, maybe both obliquely and sharply as candidate quality. Um, Because, uh, you know, there are lots of races that were more than winnable. Um, that were not won, and uh, you can you can pretty much chalk that up to um, the folks who were chosen who were chosen to run in those races. I do think um, Republicans at the federal level um, will be soul searching a lot, um, especially given that uh, President Trump's um, nominees or or the people he supported seem to be the ones who who took the the who were gored most. Um, and uh, Ron DeSantis and others seem to um, have performed incredibly well. Um, so, so I think that is an emerging thing. But I would describe it overall at the federal level as not a, a red wave or like a blue wall, but more of uh, like a, a, a something purple, you know, like a, a, a purple swell. Maybe that's a, a good thing, um, because I, I do think that particularly among suburban women who had like a, an enormous swing to the to the right in the, in the weeks coming up to the election, um, and, and they're important, obviously, for, for a lot of reasons to deal with education, that you saw, you saw a similar swing um, in the last cycle during the presidential, 
um, because that audience was sort of um, had had enough of President Trump at the time. And they took it out on suburban Republicans in a lot of respects and kind of hollowed out the middle there. And I, I do think we saw them instead of instead of going all the way in the opposite direction, saying only this and no more. Right. Um, and, and that is why moderates, I, I think, are the story of, of all of this for the most part. Um, you know, even Kathy Hoch, you know, Kathy Hoch was a moderate. Right. Like uh, a lot of these folks sort of wound up running down the middle. So um, running to the center works in, in general elections uh, uh, often, and it may be the story this time as well. So but how about down at the local level? Do we have enough information to say if education is playing a role in uh, state legislatures or gubernatorial elections or uh, what's happening beneath uh, the big headlines? Yeah. So in state legislatures, I don't. Th I think the the jury is kind of still out yet because we don't we don't know what's going to happen there. I think if governors and what they've done over the last couple of years is any proxy, the the answer is is yes. We do know some things. Um, very specifically with regard to um, school choice policy, and I'll I'll you know we can go through all the flavors of it. At, you know, sort of charter schools, tax credits, education savings accounts, open enrollment, all of these things. Those things had a big day yesterday. Um, you know, oh, that's news because I have not seen much discussion of that on the CNN or Fox or any of these national outlets out there. So yeah. what, what's happening there? The, the other the other stuff is sexier, I guess. I, I mean, look, you know, uh, Governor Sununu passed, a, 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 you know, um, has been supportive of vouchers his whole his whole time. He won, you know, uh, Kathy Hochul, who uh, was playing footsie with the teachers unions for the most part, was pressed to the limit and she came out in support of lifting the charter school cap. Um, uh, now governor-elect Shapiro in Pennsylvania, he came out for private school choice, uh, which, his, which his opponent um, uh, Mastriano um, also was supportive of, right? So, so we had that in, in blue states in the Northeast. You had Jared Polis, who was a longtime supporter of charter schools and really like the like what I'll just call like the the Bush Clinton consensus around education policy. He was in Congress when all that was. He he's been a stalwart. He he rolled in uh, uh, in Colorado. And then you see uh, uh, Governor Kelly who signed open enrollment in a law this year and who also did a direct aid package with COVID relief money. She's a Democrat. She got reelected in uh, in Kansas, as did um, Governor Little. Who is a Republican who also did the strong family, strong students, um, direct aid to families package in Idaho. So I think at, at that level, there are lots of really good things that um, that happen. You can dial in on a couple of more races where I think it's even sharper. So you go to Texas, for instance. Obviously, Texas is like the place we all think should have school choice that doesn't, or more school choice that doesn't. But both the lieutenant governor and the governor campaigned heavily on private school choice initiatives. Um, uh, you know. Beto, because as the people on my team want me to stop calling him his wrong name, which I sort of do on purpose, but uh, candidate O'Rourke, um, you know, went up in flames after promising to eliminate assessments, right, as a key plank to his um, his agenda. Uh, so, so that's good. And then in Oklahoma, uh, Kevin Stitt, who passed open enrollment and has made private school choice a key piece of his agenda, and who also used gear funds to top off the state, state scholarship program, he won running against the former state superintendent who switched parties to run against him, right? So, so that's a, a good one. And then the last one is obviously, um, last two actually, are, uh, are Bill Lee, 
who, along with Commissioner Penny Schwinn, who is who is excellent, they've they've been racking up wins the whole time um, on ESAs, on vouchers, on tutoring, on assessments, on reading, on um, all all like uh, grow your own programs for new teachers. They won with sixty percent of the vote, and uh, and Ron DeSantis obviously just you know elbow dropped Charlie Crist um, at this point, which um, one to to me sort of says look. Uh, school choice is a bipartisan thing. I mean, it's essential to his platform. Like, I know people want to say that uh, that uh, Florida is full of Republicans, which it is, but there are lots of Democrats <laughs> that, that live there too. Um, and it's probably a bad idea to have your running mate be the head of a local teachers union who is hostile to all this stuff, as as uh, candidate Chris did. So, so I think in all of these things, there were a lot of good wins, at least at the state executive level, that add up to. Uh, a much more favorable picture than you might get from somebody who just wants to talk about the bloodletting at the federal level. So uh, you mentioned that in Florida, there was a teacher union leader on the, on the, on the ticket. So uh, what role did the unions play in general in the election? Were they very active? Were they not so active? What were their issues? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So I don't really think they had any issues. <laughs> what like their issue was, can we get behind somebody who's going to let us continue to behave poorly and reward us for it? And so uh, Randy Weingarten obviously was, uh, you know, as sort of the the figurehead of all of this. She was out on the campaign trail. She was in Ohio campaigning for Tim Ryan, who lost. You know, she was in um, uh, uh, New York campaigning for Governor Hochul, who, who won. Um, for me, I was looking at her and I'm just like, when she shows up, it's like the grim reaper for your campaign, right? Like this, this was bad news last, last year um, it, for, um, uh, for, governor, for former Governor McAuliffe. And it, it doesn't seem like a trick you wanna keep trying, but apparently people keep want, wanting to try it. Um, and then the, the Florida folks were, were the same. I, I would just say that their issues for me seem to be one, they have seen the data and seen the trends in policy. Uh, millions of, of American families have left, the, have left the traditional public schools and chosen charter schools or private schools or home schools or micro schools or whatever. Um, uh, and, and ostensibly teacher headcount is down. So they're eager to find money to backstop that so they don't lose any funding, right? So, so overt or covert, I think that's a very important um, issue to them. And then the, uh, the other one is, continued revenue at the federal level, which seems to be the thing that folks have been falling back on forever because state funds are are, are strained at this point. So again, overt or, overt or covert, I think that's- um, uh, But that's likely to come to an end. I mean, if you assume that uh, CBS News is right and the Republicans have captured the House, uh, they can pretty much have a a, a, a big dampening, a dampening effect on uh, on. Uh, uh, the future funding uh, that uh, would follow on if you kept the COVID money going into the into the future, uh, should we expect uh, a fiscal shortfall uh, soon? So, I th so I totally agree with that take, uh, and I'll, I'll push it one step further. I I think we have, and this can sound a little over the top, but I really mean it. I think we've taught um, public education sort of as an enterprise that it can. Um, open and close to reward itself uh, in, in moments, like by creating moments of crisis. And 
the fact that education is compulsory, right, is what is what powers all of this. And so I, for one, think that the Republicans, not for theater, but if they are if, if they command the House, should hold hearings on this because this is a meta question of the relationships that public public sector unions and compulsory public services have with the rest of us taxpayers, moms, dads, and kids, and that needs to be examined, especially after the last two years. Um, so they should absolutely do that. But also, I suspect they won't be writing any more blank checks, especially if you ran on inflation. You can't be writing, you can't, you can't run on, <laughs> on writing any more blank checks to schools who are currently sitting on $120 billion worth of, of unspent uh, COVID relief aid. But that $120 billion that's sitting out there probably put a damper on the demand for still more money. I mean, I didn't hear much of that in the campaign. The schools are starving to death and, and we, that that's often comes up in political campaigns, but I didn't hear much of that in 2022. Yeah, I, I think what you still heard though was, but if you do any of this other stuff, it's going to cripple us financially, even, even though there is more money in the system than there's been in like your mind and everybody we know is lifetimes <laughs> at this point. So the more things change, at least some things remain familiar. So um, what do you think will be pushed at the local level in state legislatures? 2021 was sometimes called the year of school choice or 19 or 20 different states did something. Is this gonna, is, is, is the coming legislative session going to be another uh, venue for still more legislation? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I, I think it will have to be in part because the, um, the harm of the pandemic is still here with us in a way that I think people are being, um, you know, coy, cavalier, or cautious about describing because the effects are are kind of like crippling, I think. Um, you know, I was saying to somebody, the harm in the next two year, last two years is going to be with us for the next twenty. If you didn't, if you missed a reading window in the last couple of years, like that's not going to get undone immediately. Um, and so the pressure to intervene on behalf of kids and families whose problems will escalate without the intervention, I think, is going to be one of the things that drive that drives policy. Um, the one other thing I would just say um, is that. For me, the fact that we see in blue states and red states, things that basically are like really out on the edge from like a, a fiscal standpoint, right? So I, we didn't talk about Arizona because the governorship is still up in the air, but the implementation of their ESA obviously is really important as is West Virginia. And like nine states, I think is what it was, had programs where they sent money to families about edu education dollars, right? These things are like they're on the edge, you know, and suddenly the edge is becoming familiar um, in a way that, you know, almost 20% uh, of states have done something that, that looks like this. I think that is, um, is very heartening, and I think it's going to be hard to put that genie back in the bottle. Well, how about judicial appointments? Uh, aren't there a number of uh, state judicial systems that, uh, where you have elected uh, justices Weren't there some instances there where education was playing a role in, in those uh, elections as well? Yeah, that, that, you know, that's interesting. I know, so on the school board side, I know apparently in Florida, the folks that Governor DeSantis um, backed were elected. I do think, um, you know, in, in North Carolina, they had a, I think they call it Leandro, 
that's a that's their sort of school finance equity thing. I know I know that took a couple steps forward last week. You know the the question of whether or not the judiciary is the best place to resolve these questions, I think, is 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 coming back in part because the way judiciaries normally solve these questions is to save more money. And now there is more money in part because there are massively fewer kids, right? So, so on average, I mean, I, I'm, this is hyperbole, but it's not super hyperbole. You know, they're like by some reports in New York, they're spending like 35 or $40,000 a kid now, right? I mean, the, like in New York City, the numbers are, are outrageous um, when you look at declining enrollment versus everything else. So um, I do, um, I know some folks who want to get some sort of like federal redress on like a right for education. I'm not sure whether or not that's the kind of thing that would fall, you know, well with the Supreme Court, because I expect if something like that happened, it would wind up there. And I doubt the justices would be on board with it, but we'll see what other judicial challenges are in the works. Well, you you mentioned that uh, there's a decline in enrollment, and uh, you know, is there is there actually genuinely a significant migration away from the public school, or maybe migration away from big cities, and so people with with children are moving to elsewhere in the country? But is there a move away from public education to the private sector, or at least to to the charter sector or homeschooling? How much of that is actually going on? Yeah, so I'm gonna give I'm gonna give you an imprecise explanation of that, but I will give you a precise source to find out <laughs> to find out about it. So, so the answer is yes. I, I, but I want to I want to say two things on this. So, so one is that I think particularly where large large urban school districts are, are concerned, we have failed to deal with the fact that declining enrollment is a is like a feature of the whole thing now. So I remember reading in the Wall Street Journal, and I will pick on your, uh, your, your backyard, uh, that being Boston, sir, um, that uh, in an article about whether or not um, State Chief Lawrence would, uh, would invoke receivership for Boston, that in 1960, the Boston public schools had 100,000 kids in them, and now they have 48,000, I think is what it is. No, 47,000 and 28,000 a kid. So let me tell you the two things that did not do that. Charter schools are vouchers, right? So, so the uh, uh, you know New York City has been going through this. You know, LA, Chicago, like th this is a this is a this is this is pervasive, and we have to answer the question of like what do we do, um, and and that is a serious question, and that needs to get done. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would just say is uh, Titan Partners did a um, a study on this for the Walton Family Foundation, um, and uh, I can't remember the name of the of the study. Um, but basically, yes, the moves are real. Um, like the, the, you know, the number of homeschool, well, black homeschoolers tripled. There was a, a serious migration from traditional public schools to charter schools and private schools, in part driven by the pandemic. Obviously, like you know, one of the things I think we saw in in 2020 from a political standpoint was that uh, teacher unions came out and fought hard for caps on virtual charter schools which are sort of like, you know, the black sheep of the charter school world, because they didn't want to lose enrollment to them, which sort of leaves charter world with the question of, well, the fastest growing enrollment we had over the last year might have been the schools that, that are the black sheep, you know, so that, that was kind of um, um, an interesting thing. And then obviously, you know, private schools were open, um, because you, they didn't get paid to be closed. Uh, there is an, this is an anecdote, but I promise I didn't make it up. Um, uh, Kristen Dalavis, who's a friend of mine, 
who runs a, a, a Catholic school in, um, in Cleveland said in 2020, somebody drove by the school when the kids are going in, got out of this, got out of his car, came up and said, are you open? And the guy said, and the principal said, yes. And he said, I want that. And they enrolled that day. Right. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> well, so, I, I, I know some people in my own family who made the same decision uh, in yeah. the fall of 2022. If they're going to be closed in the local public school, I am going to go to the Catholic school nearby. Yeah. 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 So that has probably been the part of the story out there. Uh, it's just a matter of how big a story that is. And, and the data are always terribly slow in coming in. It's like waiting for the election returns. You even have to wait. It's not just weeks that you have to wait. You have to wait years to learn exactly how much uh, movement is going on within our educational system. Our collection of data is just uh, uh, quite, quite frighteningly bad. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think it's been frustrating and, and political in a lot of respects. So if, you, if you're a cynic, you could argue that some of the escalating attacks on assessments that came out of uh, a, like a... A, a thoughtful pause at the start of 2020 um, are about eliminating our ability to make good decisions about how COVID response money is spent to, to close those gaps, right? So you could just, you just, you know, kind of, kind of add them up. Um, and so, you know, places like Tennessee didn't stop testing. It, it worked out well for them, you know? Um, so, so I, I would just sort of renew my, support of uh, evolving the role of testing and like try and trying to fight for annual testing. At the same time, I think we, we got to find a better way to find out what's working, uh, what, you know, whatever, whatever that is. Um, I don't think that, an, that annual assessments are going to be the, the way that gets us there. Cause you know, people want to know, they want, they want to know sooner. They want to fast. That includes educators, right. Who are, who are kind of looking to do the right thing for kids. And if we had this world, which is like a world I'm sort of desirous of, where there's all this learning that happens out of school and there are people doing like micro schools and pods and all this like interesting startup stuff. Then we got to also figure out how to, how to give people information about what's working there without putting our finger on the scale so much that we prescribe what is happening there, you know, which is, which is a, a thing I felt sort of happened in hindsight at the front of the chart at sort of, you know, big CMO charter school expansion. And it would be a shame to replicate that now. So, yeah, well, education savings accounts are designed to do pretty much what you just recommended there. So do you see that as the area in which uh, school reformers are going to be concentrating their energies in the next couple, three years? Yeah, I was talking to somebody a couple of uh, uh, years ago, um, and I didn't want to be sort of deconstructionalist about it, but I was like, all school reform is school finance reform. And I was like, everything we care about is about how you can pay for it, you know? And so if you take such a reductionist view of it, absolutely. School finance reform is at the, the top of everybody's list in one way or another. And certainly the, um, like the concept of an ESA polls in, in exceedingly well. I think the question is whether or not you can implement it in a way that does, I think, three things. One is gives the people who, who you know, like the lawmakers who bring these things into existence, um, enough freedom to let people make mistakes, but enough um, 
enough sort of cover so that the mistakes don't kill them, right? right? So, so that's a, because this, this will be a mistake rich zone. That's actually um, uh, a good thing, you know, not, not, a, uh, uh, not a bad thing. Um, the second thing is how folks can um, make ESAs work for people who still want their public school. So you like you want half of your public school and you want something else in addition, right? Or you want to top off something at your public school. I think that's um, that's super uh, important. And then I think the third thing is that we have to. There are there are constituencies like homeschool constituencies for the most part who they read these things and even if it says no entanglement, they're like I smell entanglement, right? And and perhaps that is a um, a, a legitimate set of fears born of homeschooling. But uh, some of those folks need to be convinced, right? Into in the same way that, you know, like uh, Upper East Side uh, uh, soccer moms who are at the center of this election cycle apparently need to be convinced that it's okay to do something besides choose your neighborhood school, right? Um, even if you even if you have this outrageously expensive postage stamp of an apartment so that you can get into it and tell your friends it's free when it isn't, you know, um, so. The, the, the work of building constituencies in the real world, not just in a, in a polling sense of these things, I think is also very important. Well, thank you, Darrell, for uh, illuminating what this election actually means for people who are engaged in school reform and for parents who actually are worried about what's gonna happen to their children in the coming year and the coming uh, number of years. So thanks for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me, sir. I have been speaking with Darrell Bradford, president of 50CAN, a national education advocacy group that works for kids at the local level. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. A new podcast is released on the Education X website on Monday each week at noon Eastern time.